So I'm here at the ABN with Professor Matthew Wood, who's giving us a talk on antisense treatments in neurological disease. So welcome, um, Matthew. Uh, this is an amazingly exciting area and marks a complete uh, new phase in our treatment of neurological diseases. So uh, tell us a little bit about what's involved. Yes, I mean, you're, you're right. It's a, it's a paradigm shift, really, in the way that we can think about treating um, neurological disorders, predominantly those that have a genetic basis, but potentially even acquired disorders. It's been a long journey. Antisense was first described in the 70s, 1970s, so we're almost 50 years down the track. But the, the first types of therapies are really emerging uh, and have navigated their way through the early clinical trials, and we have a first generation of therapies, that, some of which are going to be uh, you know, marketed. So it's, it's a very exciting time. So tell us a little bit about what we mean by antisense um, for, to the lay person who may, who may only remember a bit of genetics from their early medical school. So typically when we talk about antisense, we're talking about a single-stranded oligonucleotide. So a bit of nucleic acid that looks a bit like DNA, but not the double-stranded DNA, a short single strand, probably about 20 to 25 nucleotides in length, that through its precise sequence is able to interact with a precise uh, genetic target and modulate its processing function activity in some way. And how would we get that into the cells? Yeah, well that you've hit on the absolutely uh, $64,000 question. This is the major limitation of all current antisense treatments. These are large molecular weight drugs, so they're not your typical small molecules, um, they are largely um, excluded from cells. And so intracellular delivery is the major challenge with these types of treatments. Um, there are a range of methods, um, largely in their infancy, uh, that have been developed thus far, ranging from physical methods, chemical methods, um, you know, biological methods, the use of viruses or viral vectors. But, but many of the current methods have limitations, particularly with respect to safety. So as a consequence, the current generation of antisense treatments are largely not as effective as we would wish them to be for this very reason. Tell us about the major disease that you've been working on. Yep, so we, we have really had a very interesting journey working on uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So um, the, the X-linked um, disorder that affects boys and results in muscle degeneration with cardiac and to some extent neurological involvement has really been a major test bed for the development of antisense treatments over the last 20 years. And, um, and, it, and it is literally 20 years. The first paper published was about 1995, so 21 years ago. And since about 2004, within a consortium here in the UK, we have been working towards the development of oligonucleotides, antisense molecules for this disease, and taking them through clinical trials, facing enormous hurdles along the way, partly due to the nature of the disease itself, um, has a cl very clear genetic uh, abnormality, which is why it was uh, attractive, but many features of the disease make it very challenging. Uh, and on the, other, on the other hand, the development of the chemistries around the antisense molecules has been extremely challenging. Optimizing these, manufacturing these, has been extremely challenging but you know the first clinical trials were um, about seven or eight years ago and the treatment that we've worked on was received accelerated approval from the FDA about two weeks ago. That's an amazing uh, development for a disease like that and, and where's it going uh, what other diseases have you got in the frame? Well I think the the ones that we know about and work closely on are the related neuromuscular diseases so other purely sort of dystrophies, muscular dystrophies or myopathies such as myotonic dystrophy, but other neuromuscular diseases where there is the need 
to target cells in the nervous system as well, such as spinal muscular atrophy. So, uh, and, and then there's some work, that, although not our work, but on, on other degenerative disorders, for example, Huntington's disease, where there's a clear genetic target. So I think that the trajectory is moving towards thinking about diseases with much more significant neurological involvement, but that then brings with it the challenge of not just intracellular delivery of these molecules, but delivery into the nervous system and targeting particular regions that will be necessary for therapeutic benefit in these types of diseases. Yeah, and how, uh, how do you think we can best uh, bring the public uh, families on board with these sorts of conditions? Uh, obviously very challenging in terms of genetic counselling. Um, it requires neurologists to have a lot more skills than, than perhaps we were uh, taught. I think it's, it becomes more difficult, I think, once there is the prospect of a treatment, because then I think one really has, to, has an obligation to, to um, educate the families. And it's been relatively easy with a, Duchenne, a, a disease like Duchenne muscular dystrophy because it affects young boys. Um, there's a, you know, a huge emotional attachment to this disease. The families, um, on the whole, are incredibly engaged, both in trying to understand the genetics and the therapeutic options available, and also highly motivated in enrolling their kids into trials. And I think it's probably similar with SMA. Something like Huntington's disease, I can imagine, might be, might be much more complex to deal with. Um, something that manifests later in life, there may or may not be some genetic insight already into particular families as to whether there's likely to be a risk. So I think uh, training in dealing with families and genetic counselling is going to be crucial, but I think it's going to require us all to be much more literate in genetic terms, in terms of understanding how these treatments could work, what the likely benefits are going to be, and these are not always clear-cut, uh, and the associated risks, some of which will be you know, genetic risks. Do you think that, that uh, the, the new technologies that are coming through, the CRISPR-Cas9 technology, do you think that will supersede this kind of approach or do you think there'll be a parallel approach for different disorders? Yes, I mean, I, I, think, I think the latter is probably likely to be uh, the case. I think it's very unlikely to supersede antisense, uh, at least not in the near future. I mean, this antisense, as I've said, has taken nearly 50 years to develop and, and the gene editing methods have been around just for a few years. And they will f face exactly the same kind of challenge, which is the delivery, intracellular delivery of large protein nucleic acid components to, to carry out the gene editing. So the same challenge will apply. And I imagine for the types of diseases we're interested in, the neuromuscular disease, it's going to be 10 to 15 years before there are plausible treatments that one can think about seriously. But I think in the end, the, the gene editing treatments are likely probably to have a slightly broader remit and may not necessarily be as effective. You know, one of the um, big disadvantages of the gene editing to, you know, is that the, the changes are typically permanent. Uh, and that's both an advantage and potentially a disadvantage whilst one is going through the development stage. It's all very well when you have a perfect approach and it's going to um, edit the genome with precision and high fidelity, but until we get to that point, there are going to be risks associated with the permanence of that approach. And of course, oligonucleotide effects are transient, uh, and, and I think that is at least a benefit in terms of safety as we develop the technology. Great. Well, exciting times. Thank you very much, Matthew. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you.